0: Discover more resources and continue the conversation at Apologetics.org. And now, your host, the Research Professor of Bible and Theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward.
1: Welcome to the Universe Next Door. I hope you're doing as well as we are as you're preparing for the Christmas season. It's probably my favorite time of the year. I kind of say that every season, but I really enjoy uh, just getting ready to celebrate the birth of Christ and being able to see family and, and so on and so forth. Um and Dr. Woodward, I would imagine that
2: you do too. Oh, I just revel in Christmas time. It's so you know very much Jesus time. so it's it's easy with a smile on our face and joy in our hearts to bring up the reason for the season. And isn't that great to be able to actually you know fellowship with Christians out in the public and and then and then share the good news with those who haven't heard.
1: Absolutely. And actually, my nephew, I think he's probably six years old. Just the other day, he said, Christmas time is not about Santa Claus. It's about Jesus. And I was like, yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Perfect answer. I I think that deserves two bonus points.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It really is a great time of the year.
2: Mm. Well, speaking of bonus points, I'm actually uh, throwing a party in my Life of Christ class. So, you see, I think Nick Shalna, you had my Life of Christ class maybe a little bit earlier in the, in the whole process, or maybe you had another professor oh, at Trinity. I had someone. Yeah, yeah. So, so you had someone to <laughs> fill in the blank. <laughs> so, but when I'm teaching Life of Christ, I just love it because we actually start, of course, in August and early September covering the story of the Nativity. And so uh, as we're jumping into a bit of the, our own jump for joy, you know, rejoice that the uh, Savior has come, the Messiah has been born. And uh, it's just, you know, we can talk about the Jesus story a little bit and, and how it intersects with a crucial apologetics issues. But I think it's just so much fun to, to think back in my opening of the semester. I surprised my students with a, with a party and what, I, what they don't know until as of today, they, they've been informed that there's going to be a second party. I mean, like there's the start party and then there's the conclusion party and we're going to have some treats and we're going to have a little fun Jeopardy quiz and there'll be first and second, third, you know, prizes. And so I think they're going to jump with joy. But one of the key questions I'm going to ask them is, you know, what is the basis for joy? Why are we jumping? I love the phrase jump for joy because, and, and I hope this doesn't sound too weird and crazy, but, uh, you know, you're, you're familiar with old Dr. Cra- crazy Dr. Woodward coming up with <laughs> yeah. the strangest things you can imagine in my classes and lectures. But, yeah. Yeah, but w- what, what I want to say is that we can jump literally, I mean, mentally and, and kind of imaginatively, but physically, we literally jump for joy because the Savior has come. Because at the end of, of Christ's life, the, the price was paid, paid in full. And, and the huge, as it were, um, universe shaking amen. sometimes I, I, in my mind I can't think of the universe as shaking with with laughter over the, the the sheer joyful success of the gospel as it just knocks down barriers one after another. yeah and there's pushback. We know Satan's still out there. we know that the fight is on but but the the trend of the war is like the last year and a half of the, of the Nazis, as they were, you know, receding, receding, and as the Allied forces were going across France and across Europe, uh, capturing lost territory. And so Christ, as C.S. Lewis said, has landed on enemy-held territory, and we are part of the successful army of, of love and of salvation. So I'm, when I'm thinking of the joy of, of the, the fantastic forward movement of the Christian faith, and one makes me want to jump. But just stop for a second. If, if Darwin is right, if the hardcore scientific atheists and naturalists and physicalists, uh, they go by several names, but usually it's naturalism or materialism or physicalism. If that worldview is right, then they have their own joy moments, but it's nature that is jumping. In other words, you cannot gradually evolve one kind of animal into another animal and 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 fail to leave a sequence of step by step, you know, um, stages along the way. The, the core of Darwin's theory is no jumps. Now I'm sure, you know, if 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 they were to import some jumps in the theory, they'd just like what, you know, and there were, and you and I know that a couple scientists, uh, Niles Eldredge, Stephen Jay Gould, tried to import some medium sized jumps. Mm -hmm. The problem with their jump in in the Darwinian theory, and we're going to talk about that today, is that there was no evidence for the actual, you know, transition, the fast movement in the actual jump. So to give you a good example, the earliest of the um, basically modern bat fossil, Myotis Myotis, um, those bat fossils are not suddenly, you know, as it were, You know, or I should say, recently discovered, you can go back 50 million years and see modern bat fossils. And that's interesting because that's when bat evolution was supposed to be just getting underway. Mm -hmm. When that crucial fossil turned up in Wyoming when I was a teenager in a quarry, the scientists were shocked because they saw that bat kind had not gradually stepped by infinitesimal tiny little step. It had not phased in along millions of years. It suddenly happened overnight. It was almost like, okay, let's start bat evolution. Bang, it's over. (laughs) What? How did that happen? Oh, we just did it quick. Right. Okay, well, can you show us the transitions? Oh, I'm sorry, there aren't any. Transitional fossils must be there. Well, yeah, they surely must have been there, but we can't find them. Why is that? Okay, we haven't looked hard enough. Okay, now that excuse wears thin if you keep checking hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of locations. And if you have literally many thousand geologists and assistants to the geology, you know, paleontology group who are looking and ransacking the earth, and they keep finding, you know, these new creatures. And then the bat is just chosen as an example. Another example is, uh, for example, dragonflies. And Gunter Beckley, he actually wrote um, an article that became part of a new book, the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Christian Faith. So in a, in a nutshell, what Gunter Beckley is summarizing is that Darwin demanded certain qualities to appear as basic to his theory. In other words, his theory of gradual development of all life from a single simple source of of pulsating blob of protoplasm, some simple bacteria type creature in um, hundreds of millions, if not billions of years back. And if Darwin, uh, according to his theory, published in 1859 and elaborated ever since then, most recently, for example, by Richard Dawkins in his book, The Greatest Show on Earth, which just about 12 years ago when it came out, he said something similar to Darwin. He said, quote, evolution not only is a gradual process, as a matter of fact, it has to be gradual if it is to do any explanatory work. Close quote. Now that's an amazing statement. That sounds like Darwin himself is speaking. It's like Darwin himself, 150 years later, comes back from the dead and he's reincarnated. You know, I I don't believe in reincarnation, but I'm just saying Dawkins is so identical, so close to the original uh, Charles Darwin view, it makes you almost faint with shock because this shows, you know, that, that gradualism. As as Beckley says, and, and Beckley was was an atheist until just a few years ago, totally embraced evolutionary theory until he found that the Darwinian theory didn't square with the evidence in his own work in, in, in entomology, paleo entomology, study of insects and specifically dragonflies from you know way back. Uh, the The evidence just didn't support it. So, um, but if if the idea of gradual evolution is not just one option, not just one way of viewing Darwinian theory, Yeah, you know, I can take it or leave it. Okay, you want a little bit of, um, you know, whipped cream on your your pie, I can take it or leave it. Well, gradualism is not the optional whipped cream on your pie. I mean, gradualism for Darwin is the pie. It is the basic thing itself. And he says, uh, Beckley, (laughs) I think this is really funny. This shows that gradualism is not just one optional element of Darwinism, but that is very much essential for its success as a naturalistic explanation for all the complexity and diversity of life. In other words, if gradualism is wrong, says Beckley, then Darwinism is refuted. Bingo. That's pretty strong words, Nick.
1: Yeah, that's the whole point of Darwinism.
2: Well, exactly. In other words, in Darwin, it's funny. That there's this Latin phrase which says uh, natura non facit saltis. And I hope I'm pronouncing my Latin right. I had two years of Latin in high school, which gave me kind of a working ability to uh, navigate the, the language. But uh, natura non facit, you know, that whole idea is nature is not making, and then the key last word, saltus. And saltus is the Latin word for jump. And I think I may have some point in the past mentioned that I've, in my 10 years of study of Spanish, one of the first verbs I enjoyed learning was saltar. And saltar, in present tense, I am jumping. Estoy saltando means I'm jumping around. Now, if you're a Christian, you have a reason to jump. Uh, You would say in Spanish, yo tengo una razón para saltar. In other words, I have a reason for jumping. And we jump because of the joy of our faith. It makes us want to jump for joy. But in, in, in Darwin's theory, they do not allow the, let's say, organic jump. Because if you have a jump, In other words, if you you require a jump, if there is uh, in the fossil record, this disconnect between the gradualistic development theory and the sudden appearance of a new form theory, if you have to go with the evidence and the evidence says there is a jump, then the Darwinist is no longer jumping for joy. He's downcast, he's lost the debate, he's lost the reason for his argument to be considered at all. Now, some people may say, uh, you know, because the fossil record is is highly discontinuous and we admit that it appears to contradict Darwin's uh, theory, uh, but he actually used excuses in his book and he tried to explain it away as what's called an artifact. Now, what does that mean? Well, artifact is something you, you dig up and you're just looking for things, and, and it's just because we haven't done enough digging up. The artifact theory refers to this uh, idea that, well, that's just the way it looks because we haven't done enough checking. Well, that may have, uh, you know, worked 100 or 150 years ago, Um Philip Gingrich, uh, a professor of evolutionary biology, once was very irritated, and he remarked that gaps of evidence are gaps of evidence, and they're not the evidence of gaps. Did you hear that, Nick? Yeah. I yeah. I play on <laughs> Gaps of evidence are just gaps of evidence, and they're not evidence of gaps. And what was he trying to make? To me, it was a lame excuse. He's saying that there is no gap in the fossil record; we just haven't checked enough. Well. You know, appeals to incompleteness of the fossil record just simply do not work any longer. Uh, One of our friends, Paul Nelson, I think you remember, we've interviewed him more than once. Mm. Uh, Intelligent design movement, uh, popular uh, major figure, uh, really one of the pioneers of intelligent design theory. But uh, Paul Nelson says, imagine you have a new hobby. You like to just walk along the beach, maybe here in Clearwater, Sarasota, anywhere in in Florida, and you just like beachcombing. And every day you walk along the beach and you click, whatever the tide washes in. And Nelson says, in the beginning, you're surprised each day by a new discovery. Okay, you get different kinds of shells, snails, uh, mussels, Uh, you find a starfish, maybe, and sand dollars, and even bits of driftwood. And you, you keep a tally, and you keep putting them in different categories, different maybe different boxes or bags. But after a while, says Nelson, you're finding mostly the same stuff over and over and over again. And you have to be really lucky to find something new they haven't seen, like maybe a whale, you know, or um, a message in a bottle. That would be a pretty rare event. Wouldn't that be fun, Nick, to, to put, pick up a bottle and just find a message inside? It sure would. <laughs> I've I'm, never gotten to do that. No, I know, I've never seen one. I, that's, that's one that's so rare I've never had one. When you reach this point of mostly repetition, your sampling has reached its result. You, you, you will not find uh, much of anything after the sampling process is showing all the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And so uh, according to to Nelson, at this point, you'll know that you've sampled enough to be sure you've not missed much uh, of anything that is out there to find. And so the same approach can be pointed down. We can just point to the paleontologist and say, wake up to reality. Okay, paleontologists actually do a statistical test to determine the completeness of the fossil record. And it's the collector's curve. In most groups of fossils, we've reached to the point of saturation. In other words, we can be confident that, that any discontinuities, any jumps that we find uh, are data. They're real patterns in nature that have to be explained and not just a sampling artifact. Well, you know, we just haven't done enough sampling. Oh, no, we've done plenty of sampling. And there's another reason why we know this. In the gaps and the discontinuities in the fossil record if they were just artifacts, they should more and more dissolve with increasing knowledge of, of the fossil record. In other words, if that um, Myotis Myotis, that modern brown bat discovered and dated 50 million years back to the Eocene era, as so-called, and I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to defend the dates, I'm just working with them as is, as given. But if that Eocene bat was not the first bat In other words, if there were transitional bats, eventually with a lot of checking over hundreds of years, we should have find at least one intermittent form, intermediate form. Mm -hmm. And and we should at least find one hint of something that is in the process of changing and transitioning from one kind of of rudimental scampering ground-dwelling mammal form to the beautiful elegant grace of the flying bat. So the Darwin's doubt, the phrase Darwin's doubt, in other words, the recognition by Charles Darwin himself that the theory ran against the fossil evidence, that that realization, that Darwin's doubt realization is as powerful now, really more powerful now because the sampling error excuse um, cannot, cannot be used. Now, um, you know, I have to consider the time scale of earth history uh, to estimate whether some event in history of life is is abrupt or not. When we say animals, new kinds of animals appear abruptly, what we mean is that it's a, a blink of an eye compared to the putative, the supposed hundreds of millions of years, 540 million years going back to the Cambrian explosion where all the major phyla appear in one fell swoop in, in a matter of about five to 10 million years. And that's, that's literally uh, you know, one half a minute compared to the day, the complete 24 hour day of evolutionary time scale. So transitional forms uh, are not coming in uh, like the Darwinian side would love to have them. They are absolutely dramatically, shockingly missing at every juncture, and most uh, shockingly, at the highest level of forms or body plans. You might call them foundational architecture plans, because the phyla, the phyla are actually found in great abundance. Virtually every major phyla only. The ones that lurk inside our body um, or some other animal body, the parasitic phyla, uh, which are really almost too small to be fossilized in the first place. But every non-parasitic phylum, which is, again, huge categories of life, all of them appear abruptly in the Cambrian. Now, think of that as comparing a spoon with a helicopter. So, Nick? Is the spoon and a helicopter a little bit different? A little bit. Right, just just <laughs> a little correct, bit. <laughs> correct answer. <laughs> I really made it hard for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, spoon, especially one that has a little, you know, holder on the end so you can hang it on that kind of like, uh, I don't know, the thing that hangs down from the, the, Um, top of your kitchen and has all this like a tree of uh, wires sticking out and you can hang all your implements and all your utensils for cooking on one little gizmo. Well, you know, that instrument tree uh, has the the need of being joined with uh, the utensil in this case, a spoon. So it has a little hole on the end of it. So you can hang it. So it has the shape at one end that enables it to do its uh, dishing out function for Thanksgiving uh, day Feast. And then it has the other end that has a little hole so it can hang on the utensil tree. Uh, so you've got a little bit of design. Now, that's like a basic, you know, and I'm exaggerating for effect, that's like a basic phylum. And then right next to it, popping into the, to the fossil record, is a helicopter or a cruise ship or New York City. I mean, talk about you know DNA required for any animal, you have at least um, a half a megabyte, up to 10 megabytes of data just to make the basic single cell function. And that's truly as about as complex as New York City with interacting levels of complexity piled one on top of another. So we see that the ideas of Charles Darwin Uh, His famous Latin phrase, natura non facit saltum, nature does not make a leap. Nature does not make or produce jumps. That doctrine is conflicting fundamentally and overwhelmingly with what we see everywhere in the fossil record. Namely, it's just a whole series of leaps and jumps. And we know that in technology, whenever you have a drastic change, which cannot be connected by the proverbial dotted line of step-by-step development, if the dotted line is just imagination and not reality, welcome to the real world of Darwinian struggles, Darwinian, let's say sickness unto death as a theory, it's sick unto death because it cannot square with the fossil evidence. So I think it's pretty exciting to consider what Gunther Beckley, this new member, top, top member of the intelligent design movement has put out there in his essay, which we can find, Uh, we'll just go ahead and link it to our homepage, apologetics.org for everyone to enjoy it. Uh, I'm jumping for joy because there are jumps everywhere in the fossil record. And I think you are jumping for joy too, Nick.
1: Yes, I am. And it's actually funny Uh, that not only do we not see jumps throughout the fossil record, but the only jump we see is the jump of these creatures into existence that can't be explained any other way aside from an intelligent designer.
2: Amen. Well, I'm excited about what's coming up here in the coming weeks. So as we have, um, you know, in the middle of January, Eric Metaxas coming to Florida, we want to roll out the red carpet. Back over to you.
1: Yeah, that is going to be awesome, Um, and I'm so excited that you get to jump to joy with us at this amazing news of intelligent design, but ultimately at the news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. As we said, this is a time of the year that we should just set aside, as my six-year-old nephew said, to recognize Jesus and how great he is, how amazing he is, um, and how he's the only way that we could know God, our Father, and be saved from our sins. So if you have any other questions, or if you've made a decision for Christ, please send us an email at information at apologetics.org. That's information at apologetics.org. And we thank you for listening. We'll see you back here next week as usual on The Universe Next Door.